In episode nine, we talked about applications to boarding schools and the distinctions and idiosyncrasies in this process. Today, we turn our attention back to college application and specifically consider how to obtain large amounts of scholarship funding for increasingly expensive college tuition. I'm excited to be joined today by Trevor Ramos, college funding consultant and author of the book, How to Get Free Money for College. Get the insights of a college scholarship genius who helped over 400 families get $14 million in free money that never has to be paid back. Trevor is an expert at finding scholarships and shotgunning ways to obtain this money for college tuition as the price of higher education creeps steadily upwards. In 12 years of service, Trevor has helped over 400 families get accepted to the top colleges in America for pennies on the dollar by helping students get free money grants and scholarships, over $12 million. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Sure thing. So can you share just a little bit about what got you into college consulting, specifically scholarships? Well, I had a 2.8 GPA in high school, played football and I ran track. That's how I thought I was going to get a scholarship. And, you know, I spent a lot of time working out and working on that and found out basically I was a foot too short and 50 pounds too light to play division one level, <laughs> you know, so I had to start focusing on my grades. I went to my counselor and said, hey, what schools can I get into just if I go off my grades with a 2.8 GPA? And she suggested that I look at community college. And I just, you know, in my head, I wanted to, you know, go away for college. So I buckled down, started hanging out with the smart kids and, you know, getting my grades up and I pulled it off my senior year. I got a higher GPA of 4.3, just learning how to take it more seriously, but it still made it, you know, there are some schools that didn't care, you know, about that because by the time the grade came out, but I sent my progress report to a couple of schools and with the classes I was taking. And basically I applied to a bunch of schools and I ended up getting into Boston university, got $165,000 at the time. Mm -hmm in grants. I was the only non-athlete at my school to get that much money. Graduated with a degree in accounting and found an entrepreneur that was doing this kind of work. And I really liked what he was doing, but just not the way he was doing it. So I went off on my own and that was 12 years ago. Wow. That's a good ride, man. And 160, that probably pretty much covered it back then, right? Almost. It was like seven grand a year or so. Wow. That'll do. So Talk about what makes your particular practice unique. How would you sort of describe its core mission? Yeah, I mean, what we try to do is we try to find the right school for the kid that also is going to work financially for the students and the parents. We take that in consideration. One of the most important questions that we ask families is, what are you comfortable paying towards college? So somebody might say, man, all I got is a thousand dollars a month or all I got is 40 grand and a 529 or, you know, we send our kid to a high school that's 10 grand a year and we definitely can't do much more than that. And we try to match that, basically get these schools to give them a scholarship or grant that is going to make it as close to that budget as possible. Importantly, too, is, you know, it's not just about the money. We really want to 
know everything about the student so that we don't send them to a school that, yeah, it's giving them a huge scholarship, but they're in a four-year culture shock because they're the only Jewish kid at that school or they're the only African-American kid at that school or they're the only LGBTQ student in their class. So getting all that together is our objective. That's a good approach, I'd say that, but I'd call it, I guess, a backwards approach where you're starting with the parameters and then working back to find the list. That's actually very smart. What would you say like the personality of your organization is? Sharpness seasoned, sharp guys and gals. We're all very autonomous because I still run a very lean practice. I outsource a lot of things and I find people just like you, Alex, that, you know, hey, I have a student that really needs extra attention and they they have special needs and, you know, they have test anxiety. Hey, man, I really need you to deliver for this one, (laughs) you know? So there's a lot of that as well as constantly trying to be on top of the news for the newest information that just came out so that we're up to date on what we do. Could you explain the process that you go through with a new client? I mean, I guess you kind of did already in terms of figuring out that budget and then working backwards, but are there any other steps that you kind of go through in evaluating the client and their needs? Yeah. I mean, I talk to the parent first and, you know, I figure out, hey, this is what I made last year. This is what I think I'm going to make this year for better or worse. This is what I got saved. This is the school that I went to. And this is the experience that I had, you know, because a lot of times I'll say you went to Vanderbilt, but did you enjoy going to Vanderbilt? You know, if you were to do it again, would you have went there, you know, and that will give us a little bit of context for what they're hoping for in their students. So I'll chat with them about that. And then I'll talk, say, hey, let me talk to your student. I just want to talk to them see where their head's at, see if what they're saying sounds similar to what you're saying. And that student might tell me what they've already done, what clubs they're involved in. I get a gauge of basically what the student is up for. Do you want to be in a situation where you're taking three, four AP classes? Are you planning to take a free period your senior year? Do you want to take a gap year? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what you want to study? Do you want to leave your state? And I kind of circle back with the parent and say, okay, based on my conversation with your kid, this is what I'm thinking. And based on what you're saying, you feel comfortable paying. This is what the worst case scenario. I'm all about worst case scenario. I feel like that's how I've been able to do this for so long is I tell them, look, worst case scenario, we're looking at maybe a hundred grand to go to Pepperdine, best case scenario, you know, you may get the presidential scholarship at USC that covers, you know, 60, 70%. But if you can live with the worst case scenario, then I feel comfortable taking the work on and, and, and making that happen. And, you know, who knows, you know, I've had situations where the kid gets in almost every cause they apply to, but, you know, I didn't take them on with that expectation. So are there any like stories of triumph or even failure that stick out to you as illustrative? Well, I'll start with the triumph. I think it was last year I had two kids, twin boys, get accepted to Columbia University, and they each got 49 grand a year, and the family income was about 225,000 a year. So that was pretty awesome. But the crazy thing about it is they were pulled off the wait list. And usually getting pulled off the wait list, Columbia doesn't always pull from the wait list. And the crazy thing about it is they actually had pulled twins off the wait list the week prior to my twins getting in. So we were thinking, oh, well, they already got their twins. (laughs) They don't need us. (laughs) It was just miraculous, you know, not just that they got into the Ivy League, but like that they got the money. Yeah. Wow. How'd you pull that out, man? (laughs) 
Man, I mean, it helps when you got twins. That's why that's my bread and butter is twins with straight A's. But yeah, that helped. And, you know, it worked out. That's a very generous school. They don't really like to give out student loans. And so it's beautiful. Another one that recently happened is I got a kid that his parents, they do about 400 a year and they homeschool him. And he just got 28 grand a year to study comedic arts at Emerson, which is one of the top schools if you want to do comedy. And he wants to go to school as well as, you know, work on his comedy career. And he was so impressed by the program, he didn't want to apply to Brown anymore. So that was pretty cool. Here are a couple of thoughts that stuck out to me after the first segment of my conversation with Trevor. There's a college situation for all people in all budgets. Sounds fairly obvious, but I think people make a lot of assumptions about college and about affordability that are not always accurate. What you can afford and what your teenager is actually capable of is wise to give some consideration to ahead of time, to be able to wed those two things, to be able to wed the expectations going into it and what the student is actually going to be able to do, where they would be able to thrive, where they're actually going to make it, because dropout is a very real risk. 30% of kids don't make it to their sophomore year in this country. The element of backwards planning also stuck out to me. Thinking about what your budget is, what you can afford before you start sending out applications for scholarships, before you try the whole sort of spaghetti sticking to the wall method of locating funding for your student is about as effective as doing that on a general college admission basis. Sometimes the spaghetti does actually stick to the wall, but there's a far more efficient ways of going about that where you might end up with results that are better in terms of how successful the student is at that particular college. All the more reason to have a bit of guidance about that whole thing. Could you explain what that uh, sort of landscape looks like currently um, in paying for college in terms of the scholarships and grants? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that you have to know is how much do colleges cost? Like, I do these lectures at high schools all the time. And, you know, I say, does anybody know how much Yale costs? And does anybody know how much UConn costs or USC or whatever state I'm in? You know, I'll, I'll bring up the college that's down the street and that everybody wants to apply to. And it's often crickets or it's a very off number. And then parents are shocked because when they went to school, it wasn't costing that much. You know, so that's the first thing you got to know is like your in-state flagship school, the state one, that's going to be around like 30 grand a year, usually 28 to 35, right? The in-state school. And then the flagship university, you know, the UConn, the University of Texas, the, those, those ones are like, if you're from that state, maybe 30, 40, if you're not 50 to 60, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes 65. The UCs, if you're not from here, about, I want to say 70, would still make them cheaper than than the private school. And then when you go private, we're talking, okay, well, you got your, you know, small liberal arts school in middle America, which might be 55, 60. These would be like Ursinus and maybe Lewis and Clark, places like that, that are going to be 50 to 65, 70. And then you got the the big ones, the John Topkins, the USC's, the Princeton's, and those are going to be somewhere between 75 and 
you know, if you're a listener, if you have a junior or sophomore, by the time it's time for you to send them, it's going to be about 90, up to, up to 90, because it's 85 now. So, you know, the next budget will come out and it'll be about 90. These schools that I'm talking about, because these are the ones that I'm able to get a lot of money from, they go up by three, four thousand dollars a year. So when I started in this, I've been doing this for 12 years. USC was 55. It is about 85 now. In 12 years, it's gone up. So I'm curious, how has the pandemic sort of shifted the pursuit of scholarships and grants? Have you noticed any sort of changes in the last year or two? Well, it's shifted the eligibility for a lot of parents. You know, like I have parents who own restaurants. And when we first met, it was like, yeah, you know, we'll be fine. We're not concerned about paying for college. We just want to get into, you know, just the changes in stay home orders that put them in a situation where they can only do deliveries. And all of a sudden they're eligible for twenty, thirty thousand dollars And we have to write a letter and explain the extenuating circumstances. I also find that a lot of students are not as willing to leave their state. You know, I, like I know the UCs, it was definitely a lot harder to get into UCs because most of the students that would have went out of state didn't want to leave. So we found that. Yeah. So those are the big things. I mean, the one thing is even outside of the pandemic, even outside of, you know, changes in financial circumstances, that's always happened. People always lose their job. People always, you know, have high medical bills and things like that. So financial aid officers are equipped to see the change in circumstances and adjust it. It's just that the amount of people that needed it, you know, over the past two years has, has definitely changed. But that process was already there. And, you know, it's important to let parents know to take advantage of that and to communicate that. Have you found that the pandemic has caused a sort of tightening of the purse strings with colleges and universities? Or have you found them to be more generous? I have not seen a pullback in what they're offering. And I think the reason why is because a lot of the financial aid that they offer is tied to the economy. And because of all the stimulus and intervention, they're not feeling it now, but that's not to say that in, in a year or two that they're not going to feel it. Financial aid offers are, are usually the best when the economy is doing well. So there are always going to be some schools that are always going to be rich. Like Yale is always going to be rich. Right. They're, they're never going to really have a problem. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, on the other end, I see some colleges that are consolidating with other colleges that are just closing their doors completely. I just saw that Mills College in Oakland, which was a women's college, pretty cool experience. They, they gave out a lot of money. They're now merging with Northeastern, which is all the way across the country. So yeah, a lot of these little colleges are going to struggle. So yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if these little small liberal arts colleges that are not Amherst and Pomona and Claremont and Kenna with huge endowments are going to tighten and reduce the amount of money they're giving out in the future, probably two, three years. You know, taking a step back, really, what do you think the best strategy is for parents to take in seeking scholarships generally? Is there sort of one piece of advice that, that sticks out to you? Yeah, I think that a lot of parents don't realize, like they might say, oh, well, my kid's a sophomore, so I don't really need to think about FAFSA and all that. And you don't need to fill it out, but you can at least figure out if you were to fill it out what these colleges would expect that you can afford to pay for school. There's this number called your expected family contribution, your EFC. It's going to change to the term student aid index, but this number represents what the college and the government thinks that based on your family finances, you can pay each year for school. And most parents don't find that out until they've actually filled out these forms and 
you know, by that time, it's a couple months before it's time to pay for the school. So I tell a parent that has a freshman and a sophomore in high school, let's find out what they think you can afford now. And if you start making more money, we can do it again. But let's do the numbers and say, okay, when would you want to know how much a college is going to charge you? Would you want to know a couple months before it's time to send them? Or would you want to know two, three, four years in advance? And then you can just adjust it if your financial situation changes. So you want to know your family contribution, college board. If you just Google EFC calculator, if you got a kid that you're going to send to school in the future, run it and it'll tell you like, okay, this is what the colleges are going to base, what they're going to charge you on. You know, that this is how they're going to figure out what they think you can afford and you know, that's a good starting point. Another one is that a lot of schools are required on their website to give you an estimate of what your financial aid award letter would be. So if you know that your kid's dream school is, say, Connecticut College, go Connecticut College net price calculator, and it will give you an estimate based on your family finances of what that school would potentially offer you in financial aid scholarships and what they would charge you. Yeah, every school is required to have one. So you just the name of the school, net price calculator, and that should take you to it. And then you can you can start to, to complete it and get an estimate. So are there any unforeseen challenges that parents or students even run into in seeking those scholarships and grants? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is time. You know, when it comes to this kind of stuff, there's only limited time and there's tons of stuff that you could be doing. You know, you can be studying for the SAT, you can be doing summer programs and things like that, right? So it's you know, I feel like a lot of parents waste a lot of time applying to private scholarships or their students do. And they try to do that first. And they get these scholarships from websites that are showing the same scholarships to everyone around the world. So their chances of winning them are pretty low and they end up wasting like, you know, many hours chasing that when all they needed to do was pick a school. You know, you already can look from the calculator that that school is going to give you $40,000 a year. Now, there is a smart way to look at private scholarships, but it's not the first thing. I always consider private scholarships to be icing on the cake. It's not the main course, but a lot of people spend a lot of time, especially in the beginning, applying to scholarships before figuring out how much the colleges that they're planning to apply to are going to offer them. I think a lot of families will look at the least expensive college. So they might say, there's no way I'm paying $75,000, $80,000 for this school. We're just going to go to the state school and we'll call it a day. And you know, when you look at it, sometimes that $80,000 school is actually going to cost less because they have a lot more grants and scholarships to offer. And often they're going to be more committed to graduating your child in four years. So that's another cost that, that a lot of the families may not think about. A lot of parents, they're applying to schools and that school may not even offer an academic scholarship, right? They might offer only financial aid to people who have low income, right? So there are schools like that. For instance, let's take Penn State, for example. If you're from Connecticut and you're applying to Penn State, not only does that school charge out-of-state tuition, which is going to be double what they would charge to somebody from Pennsylvania, but that school does not give a lot of academic scholarship either versus you know, looking at another school that's very similar. The reasons why they like Penn State, there might be another school that actually will give them an academic scholarship. They're known for giving out an average of $20,000, $25,000 a year to someone who has a 3.7 grade point average. And, and a lot of these schools will tell you right on their website who they're willing to give a scholarship to. They'll say, if you got a 3.5, we're going to give you 10 grand a year. If you got a 3.7, we're going to give you, you know, 15. You know, and it's right on their websites a lot of the time. Here are a couple of things that stuck out to me in the second segment with Trevor. Number one, 
it's a very complex picture if you step back and look at the budgeting for school on a national stage in the contemporary situation that we're in with the pandemic. But following where the money is being funneled by the government can give you some hints. Programs are initially sort of laid out like PPP loans, the SBA disaster loans, Main Street loans. That pushed all the money into the private industry and swung the pendulum very heavily towards private schools, private colleges even. They really gained an advantage over sort of public institutions because of all of that funding, if you follow the dollars. And private schools, even you know, on a high school basis, became far superior to public schools, or at least were trending in that direction. You know, I'm speaking in generalities there, but certainly something to consider. But you know, the pendulum has somewhat swung back in the other direction since there's been such an emphasis on public funding in the last year or so. You know, where might that be next fall? I think that matters. You know, where those dollars are going, particularly if you're looking at scholarship money and grant money. The other point that stuck out to me was the huge distinction that there is between in-state tuition versus out-of-state tuition for public colleges particularly in the case of UC schools, which are excellent universities. I mean, first-class education, real quality degree, but that discrepancy between how much you're gonna be paying in-state versus out-of-state matters. Also, it's a heck of a lot harder to get in out-of-state in terms of the admission rates. So that is something to weigh based on where you live. If you're living in California, you're feeling pretty good about your options in terms of public colleges, perhaps in another state, not so much. So you should take that into account when you're trying to determine which schools to apply to and which schools are going to be affordable. What do you think the direction of college scholarship in the near future is? And is this kind of the way you would have it in an ideal world? And in other words, is it headed in a good direction or not so good? Well, I'm going to go a little bit like, you know, within the next year and a half, because the government is changing the financial aid formula. You know, I say a lot of times, you know, I deal with people who don't qualify for FAFSA, but there are some unique circumstances where maybe the parents are divorced or they have multiple kids they're sending to school and they still can qualify for need-based financial aid or financial aid based on their family finances because of that unique circumstances. And we are going through some changes where divorced families, it used to be that if the kid lived with, say, the mom, we would have to use the mom on the FAFSA, even if she made less money than the ex-husband. But now they're saying, no, we want to know who provides the most financial support in order to determine who's going to be on the FAFSA. And obviously that can make a difference. You know, if you have a parent that's living on child support and alimony, maybe working a little bit, but has custody of the child. And also, if you're sending more than one child to school at the same time, there are some schools now that have determined that we're not going to split it in half. So say if they, you know, both of them, we say, okay, based on your family finances, we think you can pay 50 grand. But since you got two kids going to school at the same time, we're going to split that in half. We are seeing them make changes to that. Not every school is taking that away, but that is being taken away. And it is going to make it harder for the middle class parents right? The low income parents that their income was already low, they were already going to get money, whether they had one kid or five kids, they're not impacted. But the people who that would have made or break whether they were going to qualify for financial aid, that's happening. I can't change what Congress is going to do. 
but I'm always looking for other alternatives to figure out what can we do and, and what other avenues we can take. I would like to see colleges charge less money if you're going to study online. I did see something today about an income agreement model. I think some schools might be starting to say, look, we'll just take a percentage of what you earn when you graduate. Now, this is way, you know, just just developing, but we are seeing some remnants of that happening in the future as well. So how can parents, particularly, I guess I'm thinking of younger students, prepare for these changes upcoming? I guess I'm thinking particularly selfishly for me, I have a nine-year-old daughter. So, you know, I'm talking about five or five or 10 years from now. Yeah, I think that, and you have an advantage here, Alex, is that enriching your child and getting them to get involved in interesting activities that are going to continue to add to their resume and, and make them a very scholarship-worthy student is very useful. Obviously, factoring in the cost of college into your budget. But I have a cousin. He just finished telling me that he only likes to fly first class now, and he's tired of coach and this, this, and that. I'm like, okay, man, we'll keep that same energy when it's time to send your kid to school, right? Don't don't tell me that you, you want the spirit airlines of colleges and, and high schools, but you wanted first class when it was time to, to go on vacation, right? So that's always a tough question because, you know, especially with the changing in times, but just taking consideration that expense is looming up and doing whatever you can to prepare for it. You know, I don't expect everybody that comes to me to have a hundred grand in 529, you know, but I do want to see that you've thought about it and put away whatever you can, whether it's 20 grand or 15 grand or whatever, because it's just going to make it easier when you go through this process. Summer programs are fantastic. They got summer programs for sixth, seventh, 11th graders that are, that are going to be studying biology and doing labs and all that stuff makes it easier to handle your first honors class and those classes in the future. And they, they end up being feeders for some of the harder programs later. When you're talking about those summer programs, are you thinking of any in particular that you would recommend? Oh, well, you know, it depends on what the kid is interested in, right? But I do like Envision. I think Envision's pretty good. It's not a very difficult program to get accepted to. And I think they go as young as like fifth grade, where even the fifth graders are, are, are learning about genetics or learning about something they can do. There's a lot of different ones at college campuses. And, you know, they're very inexpensive ones too that you can do, but they become feeders because you're doing this program when you're young. And then now that allows you to get into the really like HSSP, which is a engineering program that's very selective at Michigan State. It's not going to be your first summer program. You had to have done like ID tech or, or something else for younger kids so that you would be a good candidate for that summer program. And of course, you add the summer program like that, it's really productive to a college application when it's time for you to apply to MIT and that can make a difference. It doesn't always, but it can give you that additional exposure that you may not get at high school or middle school. Here are my final thoughts after my conversation with Trevor. Number one to me that really stuck out, perhaps that's my situation in particular, I have a nine-year-old daughter, but scholarships are not just for those with household incomes under a certain income level. We talked about 200,000 per year per household. Trevor suggested that millions of dollars of scholarships exist for well-qualified candidates over this income particularly for more competitive schools. So I think the tendency is if you're sort of over a certain threshold of household income to kind of ignore scholarships and grants, man, is that a huge mistake. 
those opportunities are certainly out there and it's not necessarily all just based on need. If the student is really, really well qualified to go to that school, then there may actually be at least some aid available to them to do that. So certainly something worth looking into and not abandoning based on your income level. The second thing that stuck out to me was that it's important to get an early start on these things. That's true of all financial planning, of course. I think I worked it out. And if I had saved $1,000 at age 20 and then retired at 65, followed that rule of 72, where your money essentially doubles every year, if you're getting an 8% return on the stock market, which is what you expect, I would have $64,000. So for every $1,000 I saved at 20, I would have 64,000 by retirement. That is a startling figure, mostly for what I've missed. Now, on a basic level, you have, of course, 529, so the modest amount of college funding that you can put aside through childhood in a tax-deductible way, that's wise. But starting to think about avenues for grants and scholarships, even a few years in advance, when your child's a freshman, sophomore even, that's just gonna put you ahead of the game. So, you know, I think that's something that's really important to get in there early and not save this for when they're 18. Another point that stuck out to me overall was that backwards planning really makes this a much more efficient process overall and leads to a much better result. And by backwards planning, I mean financially what you're going to be able to afford and what the kid's actually going to be able to do academically and personally. It might sound easy, but I think it's actually difficult to be honest about both of those things. Financially, I think there's a tendency to not really want to be all that transparent, forthright with our children because you know, want to protect them from some of the hairiness of financial life that don't necessarily want to expose them to at a younger age. But I think there are some basic ways that you can communicate what's going to be possible without maybe getting into some of the nitty gritty details. And certainly if not with them, with a professional that's going to be able to help you like Trevor. The other thing is, I think it's difficult to be honest about our kids and their shortcomings. We are so often eager to believe in what they can do and are loath to accept their shortcomings and where they might struggle. So that's not to say that we should always throw them under the bus and see them for their worst selves. Absolutely not. Parents would love them. We want to see them as their best selves. But in making these plans, I think you do need to have a bit more of a balanced view about what's possible. So you can shoot for those highly competitive environments, but still be realistic about what you expect from them in terms of production once they get there. How well are they actually gonna fit in there? It's great that you want them to have that degree, but will they actually get that degree and what will they look like 10 years down the road afterwards?